Those who are familiar with the goings-on at Christ Church know that our worship is structured around a liturgical calendar centered on the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth. The majority of global Christians do something similar, so we could think of this as an act of solidarity with siblings from nearly all nations and ethnicities and numerous denominations. I certainly think of it this way. Now, not all Christians maintain this discipline, but those that do also follow a three-year cycle of scripture readings that expose worshipers to a big chunk of the Bible. At Christ Church, we mostly follow these assignments, although there's no rule stipulating that we must. And from time to time, we will swap out readings for a special occasion or because contextual circumstance requires it. I thought about doing that today because of our current contextual circumstance. Some clear and hard things need to be said. But I decided to keep the lessons, which I'll explain. Today is called Trinity Sunday, which celebrates the central Christian idea of our God manifesting in three different modalities. The Creator, maker of all things, the Incarnate Son, Jesus, crucified and risen, and the Holy Spirit, present and powerful in every moment, everywhere. We have people tuning into our worship from around the world. The same Spirit is present and powerful no matter where they are. So today we read the creation story from the first chapter of Genesis, when God fashioned all things and called them good, including humankind, who is said to be made in God's own image. Humankind, that's everyone made in God's image. And we also heard Jesus' final charge to his friends that they should make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's where the idea of Trinity is most clearly expressed scripturally. Unfortunately, the very next phrase is often dropped and forgotten. That continues him saying, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. We'll come back to that in a minute. Here, I simply want to acknowledge this fundamental Christian idea of God as dynamic communion, which makes good sense when coupled with 1 John that says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because, here it comes, God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. The Trinity is a mystery, but it begins to make sense as a dynamic communion of love, because love is a relational concept. This is the central core tenet of our faith. It's what we stand on, as it were. It's for this reason that I decided to keep these lessons today as a reminder of who we are and the sort of God we worship and what it means for how we shall live. And since Jesus told his friends to obey everything he had commanded them, let's recall what that command entailed. At the Last Supper, he's recorded as saying this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. 
Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. And elsewhere, when challenged to state the greatest commandment, he famously responded, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, as yourself. At Christ Church, we pare that down for our mission statement. We seek to love God above all things and our neighbors as ourselves. That is the essence of our faith and practice. There's so very much more to be said about this, but for our purpose here, I simply want to remind you of what it means to follow after the way Jesus blazed. It means to love as he loved. It's really quite simple, not to say easy. The church has always, always, always been weak and anemic, if not outright flagrantly wrong, when it failed to live into this love. As just one glaring example, think of how long the church held fast to the idea that slavery was God-ordained, that white people were inherently superior, flying full in the face of what we've just affirmed in the creation story and Jesus' own witness. 400 years ago, the plague of white supremacy in the form of slavery washed ashore on our eastern seaboard with much of the church's blessing, and it's been embedded within our cultural DNA ever since. It's long past time for the church of all institutions to lament in historic complicity and its silence, and to acknowledge it has a role to play in expunging the worst of the residual disease. Let's be very clear that love is not essentially a feeling. It's an action verb. Love is as love does. In some ways, it's a kind of work. Now, I know that doesn't sound sexy or sentimental, but honestly, that's not the mood most of us are in these days in any case, right? Think of it this way. Creation was a work of love. Jesus' crucifixion was a work of love. Scaling down. Exhausted, overextended parents can understand sleepless and crabby nights and now days as a work of love. Giving sacrificially is a work of love. Resisting violence and hatred, work of love. Offering forgiveness, work of love. Doing justice, work of love. Coming to terms with our own complicit behavior with injustice, work of love. Honestly, if we don't do any work of love, we don't really love at all. And here we are at an inflection point in our national life. That's the phrase that's been employed this past week by otherwise careful generals and social observers. I agree with that observation. I do think we're at an important, even potentially dangerous inflection point. But has COVID made us more receptive, more conscious to what is? Has the sheltering in place afforded more internal examination? Have we been 
learning anything useful, even important, in these last months? It's very hard to ignore video of gross injustice. We'd have to work at ignoring that or setting it aside or discounting it or thinking that we are somehow exempt from any relationship to the systemic racism that's so blatantly revealed. We'd have to sort of steel ourselves up to say that doesn't have anything to do with us. Or if we privately know it sort of does, remain silent for now. I know about this. I know how silence becomes the preferred response at inflection points. All of us know something about this. Keeping the peace, not rocking the boat. The problem is, in recent days, the boat's already been rocked hard, near to the tipping point. And I'm saying today that at this inflection point, I will not be silent. The time has long since passed for the church to take a passive stroll on the path of least resistance. Love is as love does, after all. I found one of the more instructive and accessible episodes of recent days involved the Central Park bird watcher, a black man who asked a white woman to put her dog on a leash. When she did not, he began filming. Now, I've heard from well-informed people that this guy is often in the park and sort of an eccentric New York City character and off-putting to some. But the thing is, the woman said she would tell the police that, quote, an African-American man is threatening my life, unquote, before actually dialing 911. She told him her ploy. The video went viral on Twitter and within 24 hours garnered over 40 million views, setting off a painful discourse about the history of dangerous false accusations against black people made to police. What captures my attention in this story was how the woman immediately pulled out of her consciousness a ready-made racial trope and weaponized it, just like that. And what occurs to the thoughtful observer is the only way that trope has any traction is because of insidious racism permeating our culture from top to bottom. She had this response instinctively. And here's the point. In this way, she's a foil for a whole lot of us. She's no demon. She is me. I am her. We're all part of the cult cultural soup. We can't escape this. George Floyd could not escape this, nor the four cops responsible for his death. Ahmed Arbery could not escape it while out for a run, nor could the three men now charged with felony murder and aggravated assault, and so on and so forth ad infinitum. All of us have work to do as we move into the future, out of COVID, into the reset that will be upon us. We won't be able to forget what we've seen what we've been discovering. We can't run from the fact that COVID has been far more devastating for black and brown people than it has for white. This has ripped off the gauzy scrim, swaddling the reality of continuing segregated opportunity and healthcare and housing and, well, just plain injustice. No return to silence or denial is possible. Both internal and external work lay ahead for each of us. 
But here's the way to see it from a faith perspective. This work is the work of love. The coin of the realm of God. The same God that fashioned us out of the dust of earth and inflated our lungs with breath and called us good. All of us. All humankind. And be very clear that there are political matters we must attend to, not to say partisan. But remember that Jesus died as a political prisoner for a reason. He disturbed the comfortable power arrangements of his day as he advanced the cause of justice for the least, the last, and the lost. Let's not be squeamish about this. Let's get over the old canard that politics has no place in church. When the President of the United States blows through peaceful protesters with tear gas and flashbang grenades for the sake of a photo op holding a Bible loft in front of a church, politics have clearly been joined. And it remains for the church to actually crack open the book and read what it says. As I grew up in white church, the no-talk policy about politics was in part a smokescreen for avoiding conversation about racial justice in worship spaces displaying the American flag. The black church taught the rest of us how justice was a sacred and grave matter that had very explicit and practical implications for how we ordered our common life. How else did the Civil Rights Act of 1964 come about but through the relentless effort of black Christian activists and their allies? Remember that the founder of Methodism, John Wesley, was an ardent abolitionist and worked tirelessly for the end of slavery when that was a distinctly minority position. For him, that was a spiritual, moral matter, and it was also a political matter. Let's be clear-eyed and realistic. Civil society is built through political means, and we rely on persons of integrity and character, women and men focused on matters of justice and equity, to advance the cause of the common good in specific policy. And they can be Democrat or Republican or Independent. I've known all three to be excellent at times. But do not doubt for a moment that racism and other forms of injustice will not die a willing death. History alone teaches this. And, and you know, friends, our own hearts, if we're sincere, knows the deep truth in this as well. We need a power larger than our own to clarify our minds and agitate our love into action. Love is as love does, after all. And friends, here's where we remember that God's Spirit is very present. The Spirit of Truth, Jesus called it, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and He will be in you. This Spirit of Truth has loved us into life, and loves us still while corralling us onto the path Jesus blazed, offering counsel and comfort and encouragement and hope that God will have the day at last. But in the meantime, 
How very fortunate that in God's wisdom, we have been given to each other as loving community. Grateful, purposeful, resourceful, resilient, generous, compassionate, and yes, very, very hopeful. Christ Church 2.0, just up ahead.